This is SAFM. Thanks very much, Greg. And this is uh, the Enviro Show here on SAFM. Together with Kim Winter, Rob Parkin, I'm Nancy Richards, and we're with you through until 10 o'clock. And what we have on the line-up tonight, well, following the tragic result of that illegal dumping that's happened in the Cape just a short while ago, we're going to be talking to the president of the Institute of Waste Management to find out why this sort of thing happens. We'll also be chatting to the brand-new Deputy Director-General of the Fisheries Department to find out uh, how things are going and her new role, what the, new cha- what the challenges are and uh, what her plans are. And as I say, on Water Matters, also going to be talking to one of the adventurous team who went researching the Haripo Orange River and found a whole lot more than they bargained for, all 2,000-odd uh, kilometres of it. We'll find out what biomass fuel pellets are, as well as green drinks. So that's what we have in the lineup. And if you want to call us, 0892 10 2010, or pop us a message on Facebook. Uh, our Facebook page is The Enviro Show on SAFM. Incidentally, thank you very much to Jeffries Mahaba, who says, Evening, I'm deeply concerned about the attitude we have as a nation about littering or wastage. I think the government can do a lot to roll out programmes at schools and on communities to educate all parties concerned. We're right with you on that, Jeffries. Thank you very much. A little bit of eco-info. The three lion were released into Mountain Zebra National Park outside Craddock in the Eastern Cape for the first time today, becoming the first free-roaming lions in the area after an absence from of about 130 years. Well, I'm wondering how that's going to impact... On the zebras. And tomorrow, if you are interested in water matters, leaks, debts and devices, it's a film to be screened spotlighting the city's water policy in low-income communities. It's being screened at the Kyalicha Wetland Park, Mikasa. Uh, that's tomorrow between 10 o'clock and 1 o'clock. And also on animals, the number of rhino poached for their horn in South Africa since the beginning of the year has increased to 249 just this year. South Africans are urged to report incidents of poaching and tip-offs to their tip-off lines, which is 0800 205 005 or their crime line on 32211. You're listening to The Enviro Show. Stay with us. Do you wear glasses and are confused about all the different multifocal lens types and their different prices? Does your medical aid cover the cost of an eye test and spectacles? Ask Specsavers. Log on to our website and use our new Easy Find Wizard to quickly track down answers to all your eye care related questions. Or click on live chat and get instant optometric advice from a qualified optometrist. Go to askspecsavers.co.za. This is SAFM. And here on the Enviro Show, first up, well, it took the death of a three-year-old on the hospitalisation of several more children to draw public attention to the issue of illegal dumping in the Delft Dunes in the Cape this week. Highly toxic waste took a terrible toll on the children who were just innocently playing in the area. But as several residents said, this is an ongoing problem. The dumpers come at night and no one knows who they are. So how does this happen and why does it happen? Is it too costly to get rid of the waste legally? Or what is the situation? Well, we have on the line Deirdre Kumano Freeman. She's the president of the Institute of Waste Management here in South Africa. Hi, Deirdre. Hello, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay, not sure if we've got Deirdre with us. Um, Deirdre, if you're with us, hopefully you are there. We're going to be hearing from you in just a minute but I was just looking at some of the uh, some of the pictures surrounding that that story and there was this this little pile of what looked like pellets and a child could so easily be playing with those and sadly a little girl 
who was playing them somehow managed to ingest it and, uh, and her life was taken from her in a rather ugly way. It's a terrible story and apparently that there are illegal dumping sites right across the Cape Town. It's a very scary thing. And at, at the moment, people who are caught are fined around 2,500 Rand. But is that... Is that uh, sufficient? I'm not sure. We're going to be uh, hearing from the president of the Institute of Waste Management in just a minute. Start your morning with the news and the insights. We're joined on the line by Mr. Brian Dumas. Mr. Brian Dumas, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Kalani. Thank you. Will you be able to keep the lights on this winter? Kalani, uh, that's the plan. That's what we're working on. And Why this maintenance now? Uh, not something that we normally do. So this winter is unusual. So we're going into this winter with uh, a greater sense of risk by doing uh, maintenance. And the reason why we're doing that is quite a, a few uh, of our planned supplies that were not available. You know, our imports from Kuburabasa, the strikes we had in uh, the coal industry that has impacted us, as well as our Kubuk uh, units down in Cape Town. And all of that has impacted in our planned program. This maintenance we now have to do. Join Polane Gwala weekdays between 6 and 8 a.m. on SAFM. South Africa's news and information leader. Where right now you're listening to the Enviro Show. Hope you're going to enjoy what we have to give you. And uh, in, in a minute, we will see if we can get the president of the Institute of Waste Management, who seems to have disappeared down the line. But uh, let's start then in with the Orange River or the Harip. I think that's how you pronounce it. It's got an exclamation mark in front of it, which could mean many many different things. Well, it's uh, said to be South Africa's longest waterway, all something like 2,125 kilometres of it, making it an ideal playground for three adventurous guys who took themselves off, botanists from the University of Cape Town. They decided they, they would kayak the length and do some research along the way. It took them all of 61 days, during which time they took any amount of samples, any amount of photographs, and we have to tell the tale with me in the studio, James Patek. Hi, James. Hi, Nancy. So you did it. Yes. Um, did, was there ever any doubt that you would do it? Um, there was at one stage. Um, just before we reached Oranya, we decided to run a fairly small and tame-looking weir and uh, ended up breaking two of our kayaks. Literally, I broke mine in two and Sam, uh, one of the other guys, nearly, well, pretty much also broke his in two and we thought that was that for us. Um, But we were actually very fortunate in that it happened just outside Aranya and um, the people, the locals there helped us out and uh, there happened to be a plastics uh, molding expert resident there just by chance and uh, yeah he fixed the boats boats up for us and we wow. were on on the river again sometimes the universe delivers eh? <laughs> yes that's 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 what you definitely yeah, find when you're I'm on just thinking like about that. that river it's it's long and deep and wide and fast and furious well we hope it is because it's it, supplying a lot of water so how did you manage to get ashore ashore on the on the edges yeah after every with, day with these broken kayaks um, oh, that, on that on that occasion, I mean, the, the river kind of varies. You know, it, it goes from from being kind of fast and furious and and, and narrow with with uh, rocky edges, and 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 then it also opens up and flattens out and um, intersections, which are, are, are very easy to to, to stop on well, the from, edge. From what I read, it seems like you would know every inch of it, if that's the right expression, is that measurement of a, of a river. Mm. You were doing it with Sam Jack and Ian Durbach, and and I think that you started off thinking, oh. You know, let's just go and have an adventure. But it, it mm. became quite a serious research project. Yeah. What, what were you looking for and what did you find? Well, yeah, as, as you said, initially it was just kind of going to be an adventure. Um, 
and it kind of s slowly evolved into into a more scientific endeavor and um basically before we went sam sent out an, uh, an email to um to various parties telling telling uh, them what we were going to do and, and and putting a call out basically to 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 see if anyone wanted any data collected mm. um and we got a a very good response um uh, say on the south african environmental observation network um asked us we were very keen and, and asked us to um collect uh, water samples, the item samples, which are very useful for kind of um, looking at water quality. Um, my supervisor at the university um, was very keen on us um, creating a photo record covering a kind of um, gradient from the, the, the moist east to the dry west um, of the landscapes and, and of the river and vegetation. Uh, that was kind of my job. Um, every day after we'd paddle on the river, I'd climb up a copy and um, take a, pan a landscape panorama, which which kind of captured the river and the vegetation and, 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 and the surrounding landscapes. And the idea with that is to create a, a baseline for, for future monitoring mm -hmm. so we mm -hmm. can return in 10, 20 years' time, go back to the same spots and, and retake those photos and look at how things have changed. And that's, that's hopefully going to um, be particularly useful in the kind of monitoring... Um, changes in vegetation in the face of, of global climate yeah. change and so on. Um, and then we also, uh, the, the things we collected were quite diverse. I mean, we, we had a, a request to to um, uh, note down all the fish eagle sightings and we GPS those and we, we expanded on that and included a few other bird species. Um, I kept a bird list every day, um, so everything I saw in the river um we also gps'd all the uh, water abstraction points along the river um all the weirs all the dams that kind of thing um so it was quite varied and it just depended on what what people were interested in in us collecting yeah it sounds like a busy old time 61 days i think it took you uh, where did you where did you store all the well let's talk about it doesn't matter where you stored the samples somehow you managed to bring them back mm. water quality presumably it varied quite a lot uh, over the 2000 odd kilometers mm. did you do sample you know label all the samples so you could see where it was yeah so worse or better so so all the samples which we took were, were were roughly taken every 40 kilometers and and those were those were were, were marked with the GPS and um uh, uh, kind of uh, had uh, associating data sheets which were filled in on the, the, the surroundings and so on. Those are all been sent off to a, a chap called Jonathan Taylor who's doing his PhD through Sayon or uh, with Sayon. Um, and he's analyzing those those, uh, those water samples, the diatom samples, actually. The diatoms are kind of organisms which grow on the rocks and, and you get different suites of species according to what the water quality is like. So he's in the process of, of So you, of don't, know no. you don't know yet? No. You don't know yet? Yeah, yeah. Forgive my naivety here, but I'm just thinking that a, a water that's flowing, and well, you, I suppose it, perhaps it isn't at, a, at its sort of full spate at the moment, but um, that surely, you know, the water just flows. Uh, so, so whatever is sort of nasty and, and polluted, it's just going to sort of keep on moving down, mm. or not? Do, I well, mean, do you take the samples from the banks? Or? You, you're taking the samples from rocks, actually. The diatoms okay. are growing on rocks, and you, you, we actually had to kind of wade into the channel. You have to, you need to get the uh, diatoms off rocks, which are permanently submerged first of all, um, and then you can. 
I mean, yeah, the water is moving and so on, but uh, you can kind of start looking at things if you if you sample the rocks before a town and then after a town, and you look at the diatoms on the rocks before and after, you you may expect to find a, a difference in water quality there. So you can um, the fact that we we collected these at, at forty kilometer intervals for the for the entire river will enable. Um, Jonathan to kind of maybe pinpoint where pollution is coming in. So maybe um, after the, the confluence of where the, the Val comes in, the Val comes all the way from up in Gauteng, there's a lot of mining and uh, and so on, a lot of pollution which comes into the river from there. So maybe he's, he, he'll be able to pick up a signal there and so on. And know. I suppose the pollution would affect not just the, the humans or, or mm. who are, you know, in turn affecting it, but also all the all the creatures going to be talking to uh, the new DDG of the fisheries department in a minute. So I, I would imagine that uh, the fishes would be affected. Mm. Equally, the birds that you were talking about, they would also mm. be affected. But interesting reading about your piece here that at one point you paddled into a, a herd of Hemsbok who were swimming across the yeah, channel. But you weren't expecting that as traffic. Sure, that is very amazing. I mean, when you think of Hemsbok, you kind of associate them with very dry desert environments mm. and... and um, I mean, we were in the desert. Uh, we, it was actually r right near the end, we were near Alexander Bay, and um, uh, there was a whole herd of them on, on a on a on a sandbank in the middle of the river. And, and as we came, they kind of obviously got a little bit frightened, and they actually ran into the into the river and swam swam across the channel right in front of us. And it was really an amazing, amazing and un unexpected thing to see. Also, I think, um, sorry to sort of list all your adventures, but mm. it's just interesting to read about the, the point where you were in the torchlight, you suddenly saw the heads of these huge barbable or with their, with their mm. mouths. Yeah, that was also like an that. incredible um, thing to see, and it, it puzzled us. We we were woken the one night in the middle of the night by the splashing sound, and we kind of got up and shone our torches on the water, and and there was just this massive of of gigantic barbel kind of moving up all with their mouths open um, kind of moving up the I bank yeah it's quite menacing yeah. and we were quite puzzled uh, as to to what it was all about and we kind of thought maybe they were kind of doing a mass migration because the, the water levels were kind of uh, dropping or something which is uh, quite a common occurrence on the river with the releasing of water through the dams and so on the water fluctuates and uh, we saw we actually saw it again a, f uh, a few days later and that time we saw a whole bunch of small fish which are kind of swimming away for, and, and jumping out of the water and so on. We thought p possibly that there was some kind of group hunting behavior or something. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the jury is still out. And then if, if anyone um, who's listening has, has, has seen that or knows what, what they're doing, it would be very interesting to um, to to find out what the actual... Any barbell experts out there, let us know. Just <laughs> pop, us a, pop us an email on enviro at safm.co.za or, or send us a message on our Facebook page, Enviro Show on SAFM. You, James, you in particular, I think, are very interested in, in studying vegetation and climate change. Mm. Was there anything there that you, you were shocked by, pleased by? Um, in terms of the vegetation... Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, it's it's difficult for me to uh, to comment on the climate change story. Um, there there were quite a quite a lot of alien uh, plants uh, along the, growing along the river and so on. They're quite a prominent uh, kind of feature of the the riparian vegetation. Um, 
I don't know. One of the one of the most alarming things, I guess, for us was uh, was the uh, the diamond mining, uh, the damage that diamond mining has caused in in, in some uh, areas um, adjacent to the river, um, where yeah, it's very destructive. You know, it's literally kind of ripping up the the earth and um, it well, leaves big up scars. The earth Dumping it into the river? Or? Well, uh, we didn't really see any dumping in the river, but you you get these big piles of you know, kind of typical mine dump kind mm. of look uh, along the river's edges and and so on um, in 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 certain areas, um, and yeah, I think some farmers are even kind of uh, converting from uh, from farming or selling their farmland to to mine mm. uh, to to mine diamonds and so on and. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like you came back with more than photographs. You've got a whole lot of stories up your sleeve there. And you said you mentioned very quickly that, you know, in another 10 or 20 years, when you go back, when you go back again. (laughs) Um, Do it again? Yes, no? Yes, definitely. Oh, I'd like to. In 10 years, I need a little bit of a break. Maybe in another 10 years, come back and tell us how things have changed. James Puttick, thank you so much. Very best of luck. Thanks, James Puttick, he was one of three madcaps who... uh, who kayaked all the way down the Harip or Orange River, all 2,125 kilometres of it, and he is with the University of Cape Town's Botany Department. So stay with us. One Day Leader presents Dinner with the President. Four lucky young people stand an opportunity to join the winner of One Day Leader in a dinner with the President of the Republic of South Africa. If you're a young person actively making a difference in your community, then this is for you. To enter, log on to our Facebook page and keep watching One Day Leader every week on Sundays on SABC One at 6.30 to 7.30. One Day Leader, shaping our future. This is SAFM. And here on the Enviro Show, well, earlier we promised that we would speak to the president of the Institute of Waste Management in South Africa to get a bit of a grip on the the situation in in terms of illegal dumping. There are apparently thousands of illegal dumping sites all across the country. And we do now have her on the line, Deirdre Pumalo Freeman. Hi, Deirdre. Hi, are you with us, Deirdre? Good evening. Yes, hi. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Um, you'll be only too familiar, I would imagine, with the situation that happened in Delft along the dunes here in the, in Cape Town, a lot of illegal dumping. Why is there, I believe there is illegal dumping all over the country. Why do you think that it's happening? Um, Nancy, first of all, I'd like to just um, strongly condemn the actions of those perpetrators mm. and also send our condolences out to the Lewis family um, because, yes, that is a tragedy that happened there. But why we have illegal dumping is mainly because um, industries, and I think it emanates a lot from industries, are not sending the hazardous waste to to proper landfill sites, and it's ending up in our communities, which is a a major problem. But we also, at the moment, I think there is not sufficient um, waste facilities to handle all the waste that is being generated in our communities and from industry. So uh, that, that to me, is, is the primary reason why we're having the state of, of illegal dumping. The facilities um, are insufficient, but also people are not aware of impact of their waste streams and what effect it has on the environment as well as the communities. So one can blame the fact that they're not sufficient uh, facilities, but is it is it anything to do with cost? I mean, I have absolutely no idea how much it costs to get your, uh, your toxic waste uh, disposed of legally is it a is it a cost thing 
Um, for industries, it is a costing uh, because it does cost you to, to manage your waste effectively. But when planning to, to have an industry or an organization, proper waste management must be factored into, into your triple bottom line. So you need to factor those costs in because you cannot externalize those costs. As what has happened now, they've externalized that cost to the community. So the community is having to pay for, for people not managing the waste correctly, as well as the environment has to pay for it. So people have to ensure that they, they cost um, waste management into that triple bottom line. Um, it does cost a lot to develop hazardous waste landfill sites because you have to have proper liners in place at those landfill sites. That's why the costs are more to dispose of waste properly at hazardous waste landfill sites. But, Nancy, the, uh, disposal is not the only option. Numerous municipalities have waste exchange programs where organizations or industries can log on to those systems and advertise the, the waste streams that they have available because those waste streams could be resources for another industry. So there are other options for, for managing your waste more responsibly. Um, yeah, so is not yeah. the op only option. So it could require a bit of creative thought, as you say. I suppose with every organ, every company that is directly producing toxic waste, there should be presumably there should be somebody who's managing, you know, the, what they do with it at the end of it. Waste exchange programs. Does that apply though to toxic waste? Um, yes, they are. Um, they, they obviously have to involve toxicologists as well as the Department of Environmental Affairs to ensure that they do obtain the necessary permission to, to do the waste exchange. But yes, um, somebody's waste could be a resource in another industry. So as long as it's managed in an environmentally responsible manner and that you do involve the authorities, there, there are ways of doing proper waste yeah. exchange. I'm just looking at some of the, some of the waste that was found um, in the Delft area was uh, sodium nitrate, uh, untreated, trisodium phosphate. What could those be used for? Well, obviously I have to consult a toxicologist yeah, on yeah. that. Um, I cannot offhand say exactly what it can be used for. You say that, there are yeah. industries that, that could utilize it as, as um, raw materials in their processes. You, you mentioned that there are not sufficient facilities. Does that mean that there are not enough toxic landfills uh, throughout the country? Or does it mean that there are not enough people managing it, or not enough companies who collect, transport, dispose of? Wh which are we most short of? I think they are. In, in, in most of the provinces, we've got at least one or two um, hazardous landfill sites. It's just a matter of the transportation costs to get the waste to those landfill sites, which impacts on the cost at the end of the day. So there are the landfill sites available. They have been developed. Developed. There are also treatment facilities available. So landfilling is not the only option for hazardous waste. There are various treatment facilities as well where the hazardous waste can be treated. So it's, it's a mainly a cost factor, but as I said, industry needs to ensure that they factor these costs into it when they're actually planning on, on producing any products that waste management and proper waste management is factored into the total overall cost who of are the, running their business. Who are the watchdogs? I mean, we must know how many companies there are uh, who are producing toxic waste. Who keeps an eye on them? Well, the Department of Environmental Affairs has got the Green Scorpions, mm. so they 
they're basically the watchdogs. But also if people are dumping waste within municipalities, the municipalities have bylaws in place where they should be able to find the perpetrators that are actually dumping waste illegally. So there's various uh, watchdogs that are available, and there's a, a, a national toll-free number that, you, that, the, that communities can actually report these perpetrators um, and that you can actually get mm. through to the Green Scorpions. Have you got that number for us? Um, I don't have it offhand, um, but I can put it on to, or forward it to you, Nancy. And I, you can I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to have a quick look on uh, on the internet and see if we can find it. Um, so we'll see if we can get that before the end of the program. But, you know, I'm thinking that this is a criminal act. There was one woman, one of the residents, I'm not sure it even may have been a relation of the little girl that died, who said that these people come at night. You know, it's a criminal act. They're dumping it. They know that they're doing the wrong thing. And do they not think about the, the potential hazard of the people living there? Uh, I think that people caught doing it are fined 2,500 rand. It seems like a very small amount of money when people's lives are at stake. Exactly, and it's, it's a fraction of what they would pay to dispose of it legally. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're taking the chance. That's why the, the current fines that we have in place um, is actually not a disincentive for them to do it. Mm. So municipalities are pushing to increase the fines. Um, there are uh, much huger fines in terms of the National Environmental Management um, Waste Act um, that can be applied to these perpetrators. So at municipal level, they've got um, the bylaws that they, they've got in place where you've got certain fines, but also in terms of the National Environmental Management Waste Act, there are even higher fines that can be imposed once these uh, perpetrators are brought to book. And your, um, your own website, your own organisation, the, the, um, uh, the Institute for Waste Management of South Africa, will people, if, if, you know, if, if a company needs to, you know, decides that they want to do the right thing, can they contact you and you will help them? Yes, by all means. We are um, an organisation that uh, focuses on capacity building and, and training. We've just run successful hazardous waste management courses. So if industries are interested, they can contact us to, to um, get enrolled on these hazardous waste management courses. Um, they can visit our website, which is www.iwmsa.co.za, and they will obtain information about the training courses the conferences we have, we have a biennial conference, which is called WasteCon, and the 2014 conference will be held in Cape Town. And we have numerous um, scientific papers, case studies presented on best practices in the waste management arena. Yeah, in fact, I think that there's a, a waste conference coming up um, in the not-too-distant future here in Cape Town. I can't remember the details of it, but... Uh that should be interesting. Well, thank you very much, Deirdre, and, uh, you know, very best of luck. And uh, hopefully your words will have reached the ears of, of people who should know better. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks, Take Thanks very much, Nancy. Have a good Cheers. evening. You. Bye. Deirdre Ngomalo Freeman, she's the president of the Institute for Waste Management. That site, once again, is www.iwmsa.co.za. And we will put it up on our Facebook page, which is the Enviro Show on SAFM. Well, next up, we have a woman who has been put into very deep water. She is the brand new Deputy Director General of the Fisheries Branch of the Department of Agriculture, Forestries and Fisheries. And it's said that she's inherited an organisation with a whole lot of challenges and also a mandate to sustainably manage South Africa's marine resources, maximise the economic potential and protect the marine ecosystem. She's Greta Appelgren-Narkadien and we've got her on the line. Hi, Greta. Hi, good evening, Nancy. I call you Greta. Thank you very much for joining us. 
So, um, you've been in the job now just a few months, I think, well, maybe about six months? Since December, yes. Okay. December last year. And what, let, let's start with the challenges, first of all. What did you inherit? I mean, we, I've just read out a list of the things that you've been mandated to do, but what for you were the biggest challenges? Yeah, I think the biggest challenges was coming into a branch which found themselves with a lot of acting uh, deputy director generals. And uh, I think that made them become despondent after a while. But the department has struggled to, to fill the post because the media publicity has been so weak against this particular branch. And I think fishing throughout the, the world, actually, is a very emotive issue. So uh, the morale of the staff was one of the issues. And um, the, 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 our fishing vessels and research vessels and patrol vessels, they were looked after for us by the Navy because of some tender that we couldn't continue with. And unfortunately, <laughs> they let us down so badly. <laughs> mm. So that is another major challenge to try and get it back from them and to get emergency action plans in place so we can get them repaired properly, get them re-registered, reclassed and reflagged so we can go out to sea again. So that was another major challenge. And of course, this year, 2013, is a very exciting year because it's time for us to reallocate fishing rights in eight particular sectors. And this year, we're going to really give more attention to the small-scale fisheries. That's now all the subsistence people, families on the coast. You know, the Western Cape is so active in the fishing industry, all the coastal communities. And we started having public meetings, and that's really robust. Mm. <laughs> Some of the people are so... Hostile, some are so excited. So it's really one of our biggest challenges, but we well organized. Okay, and that also became a terrible challenge at the end of January when the company we should have got the tender to help us with the allocation of the fishing rights. They wanted an extra 5 million rand, and we couldn't afford it, so we had to jump in and do it ourselves. So that was a bit nerve wracking, but that's on the, the show's on the road now with that one. Yo. <laughs> yes, I can hear where the challenges are coming from, and it's not just to do with uh, with the paucity of fish that are still left. It's dealing very much with people. Interesting that you mentioned there's been some sort of robust debate with communities, I would, I would imagine possibly confrontational debate, because it's a very emotive issue, because a lot of the people that you're describing, certainly here in the Western Cape, um, you know, for them... Fishing is their culture, it's their background, it's their livelihood, mm -hmm. it's been with them for a long, long time. So you have to factor that in when you're thinking in terms of fishing rights. Yeah, in, in fact, what makes it a little bit easier this year, well, last year we did the, um, the Act, the Small Scale Fisheries Policy, sorry, which was gazetted after seven years of consultation and conflict and so on, but finally it was gazetted and accepted by everyone. Now we are doing the amendments to the Act, the Marine Living Resources Act, and in that Act we are going to great lengths to protect and promote the small-scale fisheries. So that poor community that has been neglected since the apartheid era or the colonial era, they are going to benefit from this year onwards. So that's really exciting, even though it's been difficult for us to do those uh, legal amendments, plus Parliament closes in September this year because of the, the, the elections next year. So we are racing against time. But besides the challenges, also the really good news. <laughs> that's why we wanted to talk to, to, mm. uh, to, to your listeners. Plus we realize it's Enviro uh, Show Week, or you know, looking at mostly environmental issues. So we wanted to just share some good news, if that's okay. We're always, always keen to hear good news. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, our, our uh, commercial fishing industry, which is a very old uh, fishing industry and very well developed, 
they uh, uh, went to a bit of a, uh, a scare because, uh, you know, we every okay, they were the first, our Hague, our South African Hague trawl fishery was the first ish, uh, a fishery in, in the world to, 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 to meet the Marine Stewardship Council's environmental standards for sustainable fishing. Oh, you know, they try very hard to meet the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit. All those three have to be taken into account. So they were certified in 2004, but every year these international auditors, like environmental auditors, they come and reassess them. So they were so fortunate, they were successful, because it's an annual assessment, even though you get a certificate for five years. So they were very successful again this year that your fishing for the Hague industry is very environmentally sustainable and the 3 billion rand hay contract with different countries was extended. So we thought we were going to lose it. Yeah. <laughs> and 26,000 people would have lost their jobs and so we secured that. So it was a huge relief. So that was the good news we wanted to share with you. Yeah, that, that is good news. It sort of explains why you're probably still at the office right now, <laughs> telling me all this. Yes. Yeah, it sounds... And I think the other one was, you know, we, um, we're going to host, although it's in November, but these kind of international conventions take about one and a half years to organize. But um, South Africa is going to uh, host in November this year the International Convention for the Conservation of Atlantic Tuners. Now, the 48 member states and 700 with about 700 delegates who convene in Cape Town. Again, Cape Town is our international conference uh, venue. But anyway, it, it will be at the International Conference Center. And, um, you know, South Africa was a founding member of this commission in 1968. So again, shows you how wonderful and how developed this so, Sorry, industry. that's the International Conservation for? The International Convention, convention. for the Conservation of Atlantic Tuners. There's quite okay. a few species of, 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 of the tuners. Mm. Mm, okay, so the International Convention for the Conservation of Atlantic Tunas, which are particularly threatened. Yeah, well, I don't think it's all that threatened, but, but one doesn't want to wait till uh, a particular species yeah. is depleted but when you, or, or extinct. But uh, our fisheries research keeps uh, a track and does research every single year to, to, to maintain certain levels of the biomass. And, and, and so our, our fisheries don't get depleted. So just, just, just on the subject of, of that and, you know, fish species that, as you say, it's a motive, everybody's concerned that the fish stocks are depleting all over. Yeah. What are we doing about growing our own fish, as it were? You know, what are we doing oh, about sort of aquaculture? Yeah. Are, we, are we big on that here in South Africa? You know, uh, I won't say we're big on it because um, I, I suppose from a cultural perspective, uh, we, we, we regard the wild stock fishing as, as so important. But we have developed the aquaculture uh, 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 industry in our marine uh, uh, coastal areas, the marine aquaculture. Now we are pushing very hard for freshwater uh, uh, fish farming. In other words, those provinces that don't have uh, a coast, like uh, Limpopo province and Pumalanga Free State. So we're working very hard to, to, to develop aquaculture in those areas. So uh, I think the problem is, uh, as, as hard as my colleagues work, and, and they've been trained in Norway, Iceland, China, but um, it's, it's still a struggle to try and sell this idea to people. Why? Why are people resistant you to You know, a friend of mine said to me when he was in the Eastern Cape and he was saying to this one gentleman that, um, wouldn't you like to participate in, in aquaculture, fish farming? He said, what? What's that? Because, you know, it's either I fish from the sea or I'm with uh, uh, animals or, or planting, but farming fish, it just was culturally unacceptable. But, but generally speaking, our aquaculture uh, uh, industry is very well developed. But 
not as much as we would like it to be. Mm. It sounds like it has potential for sort of job creation. It could we could be doing all sorts of things. Just just whilst we're on that subject of aquaculture, if anybody would like to know more, um, or if they've got, I hardly dare say this, but if they've got issues around fishing rights or if they've got any issues at all to do with fisheries, is there a website that they can go to? Is there a way that they can get in touch with yourself or your team? Oh, what a pity. We seem to have lost um, Greta Appelgren uh, Narkadian, and she is with the, uh, she's a brand new Deputy Director General of the Fisheries Branch. We're going to see if we can get her back. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to get her back just so that we can get a little bit of information about where, where, how she can be accessed or how information can be accessed. In the meantime, let me just give you the phone number, the tip off hotline number for the contravention of environmental legislation. You know, if you see anybody illegally dumping, the number to call, do make a note of this, especially if it's something that's rife in your area, is 0800 205 005. 0800 205 005. That was uh, the number we found from the Institute of Waste Management in South Africa. So any illegal dumping that you come across, number to call 0800 205 005. Uh, just whilst we're waiting to get Greta back on the line again, I think we might have a... One of the uh, websites that I've got is www.daff.gov.za, but I think we might have her back. Have we got you back? No, we haven't got her back. And the other website that I've got is www.nda.agric.za, and we will put these up on our Facebook page, so if you didn't manage to get that down, www.nda.agric.za. I think that might be useful specifically if you've got issues around fishing, fishing rights, aquaculture, anything you would like to know. Well, we're going to move on from uh, the fisheries department. What a pity we, we lost the DDG there. But what we're going to move on to next is the issue of biomass fuel pellets. Now, biomass fuel pellets sounds to me to be a very good option on fossil fuels. And tell us all about it. We've got on the line Leonardo Herrera. He's uh, the Calore Tech and uh, Technical and Environmental Spokesperson who's going to tell us a thing or two about biomass fuel pellets. Hi, Leonardo. Hi, Nancy. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks very much. So, a biomass fuel pellet is what? Well, basically, you get um, pellet systems that would be able to heat both water and uh, spatial heating air systems. Uh, basically, it's a automated fireplace um, that you could also duct off to various other rooms, so it becomes a central heating system. Or you can have it heating your water and also heating radiators and underfloor heating, that sort of thing, for your domestic household, as well as for commercial applications like um, hotels or um, apartment complexes, that sort of thing as well. Okay. Automated fireplace. I suppose I fondly thought that instead of using coal or whatever you might, or wood or whatever you might be using, you could use some of your pellet, biomass pellet fuels. I mean, can, can they be used on a domestic level? Yes, yes, definitely on domestic in, level. In um, any sort of fireplace? Yeah, yeah, basically um, the system is, uh, is, is the smallest systems, the entry-level systems you're looking at, um, heating up to around a 70-square-meter area. Um, that's air heating systems. Um, and then the smallest water heating systems, you're looking at heating up um, a 13-kilowatt system, which is comfortably able to heat up your domestic hot water as well as spatial heating up to 130, 150 square meter um, just describe a biomass fuel pellet. How big are they? What are they made of? What do they look like? Basically, a biomass system, a wood pellet system, it's uh, 
well, it's, it's pellets made from the wood waste of a timber from the timber industry in in, in South Africa. So it's wood shavings, um, wood shavings sawdust that has been heated, compressed to form wood pellets. Um, the nice thing about having wood in the form of pellets is that it's got a fixed moisture content of less than six percent. So you don't, for instance, with a two-year dried wood, you're looking at about 20% moisture content. A one-year dried wood, you're looking at about 30% moisture content. And a freshly cut wood, around six months dried wood, you're looking at around 40% moisture content. And the, the moisture content in wood is directly taken off the heat output, that the energy that you would be getting into, uh, let's say, a room or into the water. So when you're fixing the moisture content at 6%, which is what is done with a in the process of producing wood pellets, um, you're able to get a much higher energy output from the wood. It, it feels like it, or at least it sounds like it might be potentially quite expensive. Firstly, you've got to dry the wood for two years, then you've got to uh, harvest it from the timber organisations and get it to uh, a company, presumably like yours, and then it gets processed. Is that not whole at all. thing not okay? No, 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 no. It's, it's not the case at all. With the with the wood shavings and sawdust from, for instance, the timber industry. Um, it's wood waste that normally would be dumped um, in landfills or n- normally what the case is that the, the, the companies that have wood waste from the timber industry, they end up burning the wood waste because it costs around 345 rand per ton um, to, to dispose of or dump. Um, so it's a lot more, well, it's a lot more economical to, to burn the wood waste itself. Um, so, no, what, what would happen is normally the companies that would be producing the wood pellets, they would have a... a um, um, an arrangement with the with the companies that produce the wood waste is to go and collect it, not charge for the the collection of the wood waste, and then they would produce the the wood waste into pellets, which would then be used in the wood the the, the wood pellets that would be for used for domestic heating. Mm. But the the wood pellets itself, at, uh, the in heat well in producing the wood pellet, it goes through a heating process, which then which then reduces the moisture content down to six percent. Okay, that's an interesting statistic or an interesting figure you quoted there. So, three hundred and forty-five rand a ton to, yeah, to, to in the last in the last case study that I read on yeah. on, um, on the industry. Yes, it was around three hundred and forty-five rand per that, ton. That's interesting because earlier we were talking to the president of the uh, of the waste management uh, the Institute of Waste Management here in South Africa, and she was saying, you know, very often if people need to get rid of their byproduct, their whatever it may be. You know, there could be people who could pick it up. So that's the sort of cost we're looking at. So it's cheaper for those wood companies to be burning it than to be... God, it's it's shocking, isn't it? You know, there needs to be a lot of networking going on so that everybody can be using everybody else's waste stuff and doing something with it. So what is the byproduct that once you've burned a biomass fuel pellet, what are you left with then? You're left with ash, which has got a, a very high mineral content, which is which a is high great mineral for, content. Yeah, it's, okay. it's it's high in minerals, so it's 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 actually good for um, growth or or, or 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 you could say compost. It's yeah. it's good for growing other other plant matter. Um, so it, obviously not in in large quantities. Um, in in small quantities, for instance, around the garden, the amount that you would use, for instance, in your in your home to heat your home during the winter. It, you'd comfortably be able to use that in your garden for gl- growing um, other plants. Roughly, uh, how much does a bag of biomass fuel pellets cost, and is it widely available? Yes, it's, it is widely available. Um, there's various companies that sell pellets. Um, we, we're one of the companies that sell pellets. We pur- purchase the pellets in, in very large quantities from a company in Pietermaritzburg. 
Um, and and we've we've spent around two years in developing a pellet with them um, to be to be of a very high quality to be used in domestic uh, domestic heating, both spatial and water heating. Um, so yes, it's it's a it's a, a good pellet. Um, it is it is very available. Um, obviously, from us, it's it's very available. And like I said, from various other companies, you get various uh, grades of of, of pellet. Um, but yes, uh, it is it is widely available. How much is it? The, the, the cost, sorry, yeah. it's, it's fifty four and uh, it's fifty four and for a fifteen kilo bag. So it works out to be around three rand sixty a kilo, and that is for a premium uh, domestic domestic pellet. Okay, and off, off the top of my head, I'm not sure how the competitive that is compared to other sorts of fuel. But w- we're talking a sort of domestic market here. But what about correct. industry? Isn't that where it really belongs? Not, not really. What, what not. we've seen, um, just going back to the price, uh, if, if you're looking at uh, mid to high income households in the residential sector, uh, if you're consuming more than 600 kilowatts in in a month um, for your domestic uh, for your domestic electricity, you're looking at in Cape Town, you're looking at uh, spending around at the moment one rand uh, around one rand, uh, I think it's around one rand one rand fifty nine. Um, including that uh, per per kilowatt, where for pellets for the to produce a, a kilowatt in energy, you're looking at around 75 cents to 80 cents per kilowatt, um, depending on the system and, and the the efficiency of the system. So it's 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 almost half the price at the moment. With uh, electricity prices will be going up mm. um, shortly, so then it will be even less than half the cost of of um, per kilowatt in energy for electricity, but. Um, yeah, so, it's, so it's, it, it is very affordable. Um, is it the way of the future? Um, well, in, in Europe, it's, it's definitely taken off in Europe as well as in Northern America. Um, a place like Italy, for example, um, it's, it's very, very widely used. I mean, in 2010, 2011, they used around um, 6,800 gigawatts of energy. They took off the grid um, in, in, this, in the domestic heating Spatial heating and using wood pellets for premium um, premium pellets for domestic heating. So, so yes, they they definitely they, they're definitely ahead of us in that. South Africa's um, South Africa's uh, potential is around 4,800 uh, gigawatts to be taken off the grid. Mm. And uh, as far as I'm I'm aware, ESCOM was looking for removing 4,000 gigawatts of energy off the residential sector. Um, so. In, in the potential of the industry is, is quite would quite comfortably uh, be able to take what what ESCOM is looking to take off the grid yeah. off the grid. Hmm. Interesting. Just ask quickly. Could you use them on the bry? Um, no. Okay. It, 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 just it, checking. It, yeah, the, the, you do get um, a, a similar a similar product to it, which would be your your log. Um, uh, basically, it's it's a it's a log that is made from um, sawdust and wood shavings, yeah, which you yeah. could use in the bry. But the, the wood pellet itself, um, the, the, the size of the pellet, is, it, it doesn't burn as well. Um, uh, well, when I'm saying it doesn't burn as well, without, without air moving through it, it doesn't burn as well as your, your large log. Okay. Well, Leonardo, thank you. It's, it's, it's quite technical, but I think it's certainly something to know about, and it certainly seems like it could be a very good way in the future. I'm going to give out your website because uh, presumably there's a whole lot more information. You mentioned that all different varieties. Yeah. So that's www.calore.co.za. 
Yes, that is correct. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Thanks you very, very much. much. Cheers. Have a good evening. Leonardo uh, Herrera, thanks. And you to www.calore. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. It might just be calore. Anyway, it's C-A-L-O-R-E. C-A-L-O-R-E dot C-O dot Z-A. What a green goodie. Well, finally, it's uh, that time of night when you might well have raised a glass to the health of the environment, perhaps. And uh, talking of green goodies, here's a, what we thought was a really green goodie. It's a, a way to take it a little step further. You can join up with Green Drinks. Now, we have on the line Juta burns Mumby. She is a coordinator of Green Drinks in Johannesburg, but it's an international organisation. I think there are Green Drinks groups of people all over the world, certainly a couple of different branches here in South Africa. But we we phoned Juta because we know that they've got a Green Drinks coming up next week. Hi, Juta. Hi, good evening. Green Drinks, yeah. in your words, is what exactly? Um, I sometimes... Uh uh, liken it to it's always it's like a singles event for greenies. So you know you can walk in there and you don't have to ask whether you're single or whether you're green. Everybody is green, so we can all talk about green, green things. Green dating, eh? That's another story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so you get together, whoever you are, whatever your marital yes. status is, you get together. Exactly. Whatever your green status is, we get together and we okay. talk all things green and uh, and we really get people from all walks of life, from from all areas of Johannesburg, um, with all different interests in the green field from energy, from uh, people who are maybe in, um, into organic gardening or having or selling products, or people just want to sort of find out what's actually happening in the green space. So it depends on the person, uh, the coordinator, like yourself, to make sure that you get good speakers in, people who know what they're talking about? I think it really kind of varies from green drinks to green drinks. We, mm. When we started out uh, this particular run of green drinks back in 2009, we kind of started out just having um, sort of regular monthly get-togethers where people can come and talk. Um, and then a couple of years ago, we started bringing uh, speakers in. So we've had quite, uh, and, and really try and sort of tailor it around uh, um, what could be of interest um, in, in Johannesburg in particular. So we have a very local focus. Okay, so you don't necessarily have to get in sort of top-notch speakers. It, you no. know, if you've just got issues in your area, you, a whole bunch of people can get together. Issues in the area or mm. things that, or people come to us and say, we would like to um, talk about a certain product or a certain idea that people have. Last Green Drinks, um, now this, this uh, just a few weeks ago in April, we had uh, Emily Jones from Real Gardening speaking to us, um, which is a fantastic um, gardening. Oh, it's not, not that young girl who put together a sort of strips of, of right. seeds. That's yes. right, literally yes. strips of, gar- of, of seeds. And uh, she gave a fantastic presentation mm. to, to, our, to our little crowd, which was, in, which was, very, very, um, was a very vibrant uh, discussion we had. And next week we have um, Justin Hawes from the Event Greening Forum speaking to us about a case study on event greening. Okay, can you tell us more about the case study? Tempt us further. Um, the case study is actually with, it's one of the, um, I have to go actually back and look at, at my own records here. It's the, um, uh, it's, uh, the COP17 CCR Expo, um, uh, which was held um, earlier in the year, and uh, they're going to be talking really about uh, what worked and what didn't work, yeah. how they greened the event. Yes. And apparently they came up with some very innovative ideas on event greening. Yes, in fact, I think we have had. I, th- I think we've had Justin on the program. We certainly oh, we've fantastic. talked about the event greening because yes. people have all sorts of events at which they have plastic bottles of water, and you just want to absolutely exactly. die. So, so it sounds like it's a it's a really fun thing, but it's an international organisation. Do you know any idea how many green drinks there are all around the world? Um, from last count, I think we had about six hundred um, groups across the world. I had I'd seen some other figures on some other sites 
some people talked about 800, 900, so I'm not sure. It's probably around about 600 at the moment, and uh, there are five in South Africa. The, and they are where? There's, well, we have got, obviously, we have the one in Johannesburg at the moment. Uh, then we have uh, one, um, there's one that has been going in Cape Town for quite a while, and Hout Bay. Uh, so they have two in the, in the Cape Town area. Then there's one in Pretoria, and the latest edition is Grahamstown, I think, which only just came up mm. three weeks ago. Mm. Yeah. So if you want to start one, do you have to be in any way qualified? Do you have to be answerable to anybody? And what about you? What, what qualifies you? Um, I well, I guess nothing really qualifies me other than that I had a very a major interest that I have a major interest in all things green and environmental, just from a professional perspective. And I thought it would be a fantastic idea to actually get people around the table and start talking. And um, but otherwise, all you need to really do is uh, to really set it up. You um, you can go to www.greendrinks.org um, and uh, contact the administrator. And uh, they will help you set up a um, a green drinks in your area where there is no green drinks at the moment. Okay, that's and then you start from there. Yeah. There's no real format, but they provide you with a um, homepage or a section on yes. their homepage. So if you're looking for a green drinks in your area, I mean anybody who is interested in what's happening in between Cape Town, Grahamstown, Hout Bay, Johannesburg, and Pretoria, can go on that site, click on the the links, um, see what's happening. And otherwise, um, yeah, and if you're starting a new one, you can talk to the administrator and they'll help you. And then, of course, you have to find a location. You, have to, right. you have to find a, yes. a venue. Rather. Um, and we, we have been moving around a little bit, but we've just gone back to 44 Stanley, um, where we had been for quite a few years. So we just started back again in, at 44 Stanley. We're at the new Stanley bar. Um, but uh, the, the venue is obviously important. Also, depends what you mm. want to do. Whether you want to have, if you have a lot of speakers with a lot of presentations, the venue has to be suitable for that. If it's more of a um, an event where you have um, where you get together and drink and chat, um, you don't probably need that. But uh, yeah, venue is important, and also get people to the venue. Yeah. So you were nomadic greenies, so you moved around a bit. But we no. didn't move around a bit last year, but we have said we, we said we finally come back home now. So okay, we're back at so, 44 Stanley. So you're going to be at 44 Stanley, that's a Stanley bar that's in Mill Park, and that's I think it. it's next week, uh, May the 2nd, is it? May the 2nd at half past six. And is it free? It is free, um, but please pay for your own drinks. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Judith, what do you do? You say that you're a greenie or you have um, a professional oh, interest. I run a, a green building consultancy called Ecocentric. Okay. Yeah, okay. We're, we're green building consultants. All right. Well, yeah. we might have to get you back again and you can tell us a little bit more about what I'd you do. How many, how many members? I'm not going to ask about their marital status again, but how many members have you got? Um, I, well, it depends. Where, I mean, on, on, we have a Facebook page, uh, okay. Green Drinks Johannesburg, and I think at the moment, last count, I think we had 130 people subscribed to our page. And I think we have about 150 people on our mailing list. And then we also tweet. We've just started tweeting, so it's uh, we only have about, oh. I don't know, maybe 20-odd followers. Well, gosh, you're so socially aware. Yeah, we're completely. <laughs> Judah Burns, Mumby, thank you very much. I'm going to give out the details thank once very again. Much. Very best of luck. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. And she was talking there about green drinks. Well, green drinks, Johannesburg, www.greendrinks.org. Uh, find them on Facebook. It's uh, Green Drinks Johannesburg. And you can get the Twitter handle, but I'm sure you wouldn't uh, find too much trouble to, to get it.